I'm excited that it is Resurrection Sunday, that we get to say he is risen another year, and to know that our king could not be uh, conquered by the grave, but rather he came to conquer and give us life. And so I'm excited about that. If you are a guest with us, I want to say thank you. Uh, thanks for joining our family for the day. This is a big family, and there's always room for you. And so I uh, want to invite you, uh, if you would like to, to give us your information so that we can know you, pray for you, contact you, spam you. Just kidding, none of that stuff. Um, we have these little covenant cards, simplest thing in the world. You throw your information on the card. It's on that table right outside the door on the info table. And our way of saying thanks to you is we have mugs out there with coffee, free donuts, or even uh, T-shirts stuffed inside of them. And so if you want to go home a winner today... Um, you drop this in the basket, you take your mug, and you look really pretty cool. Also, if you have kids with you, um, we are about to dismiss our kids. In a minute, I'm going to say the kids are dismissed to go and have a ball. And if you have kids with you, we promise we will return them. Um, and so if they get up when all the others get up, Miss Allison is standing right at the back door, and she will make sure your kids get to the right age room. And so, uh, kids, you've been waiting. You've been very patient. We're so grateful for you, but you are dismissed. Well, today is Easter Sunday, and it's also the day that uh, we continue on in this sermon series we've been in on Exodus. And I don't know what Easter is about to you, if it's uh, colored eggs or spiral sliced ham. Um, we're from Texas, where a pinata is usually involved. Um, so I don't know what Easter looks like, but what I know is that we all come together around a risen Savior. We all come together around an empty tomb uh, to celebrate. And so it might be surprising if you're just joining us, that this is your first Sunday with us, or if you're visiting family and you just happen to get drug in here, to go, why would we be in Exodus when we're talking about Jesus? Why would we be in a story that's 1,300 years predating uh, the days that Jesus walked the earth? And I am so glad you asked me that. We're going to get to Jesus, I promise, and we're going to make sense of the whole thing. But what we'll see is that uh, the Bible as a whole is this blinking arrow that points to Christ with every word. That every story, every narrative, every page, every word uh, points to Jesus as the ultimate rescue. And so uh, we're going to be in Exodus. We're actually going to be in Exodus chapter 14 today. And so what we did last week was we looked at the plagues. The river turns to blood, frogs, gnats, locusts, the whole thing. Everything starts to break down. It culminates in uh, ultimate darkness. And then in the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt, except except for God's people. God spared his people. The Passover happened and, and Pharaoh finally relented after over and over being asked by Moses, will you let my people go? Pharaoh said, never, never, never. And finally, at the last plague, as it hits, Pharaoh says, take your people and go. The people of God are released from slavery. In Exodus chapter 13, God sort of lays out this map to the promised land. And what's interesting, and we're not going to read all of that, we don't have time to get into it, but, but God doesn't send them directly to the land of milk and honey, to the promised land. There's a really straight way to get there. And God actually sends them in, in a really bizarre sense. He sends them around. It's like if I um, told you to, how to get to Columbus, and I had you make a left around Chicago, and then eventually you're going to get to Kansas, and, and you, you know, 40 years later you'll find Columbus. And th this is the direction God sends his people. He doesn't say, um, go this way, and they got lost. He sends them this kind of long route. And he does so to send them away from a war that was happening in the region. 
Because if you look at a map and you see, well, why did God send them? It's there. Why didn't he just send them? Why did they go to the Red Sea? Sometimes God has a, a bigger plan than we can even see. So we pick up the story as Israelites are camping uh, there near the sea. It says in Exodus 14, verse 1. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and to camp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Balzaphon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and he will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? What happened is Pharaoh looks down and he sees the the kind of the backbone of their economy has gone. Under pressure, he releases the sons of Israel and now they're gone. And he goes, wait a minute, we had had this massive labor force and they're gone. We got to go get them back. Verse 6, he made his chariot ready and he took his people with him and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, his army. They overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihiroth in front of Balzaphon. And Pharaoh drew near. And as he did, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And the sons of Israel became frightened and they cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, their leader, they said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is, this is a really shocking turnabout here. Pharaoh is pursuing and the Israelites react. And in verse 11 and 12, we see the Israelites who have just been freed from like generational slavery being pursued by the Egyptians. They immediately say, we would rather be slaves there than die here. And they look to Moses and they say, didn't we tell you this was a bad idea? They cry out to God, didn't we tell you this was a bad idea? Remember, God sent them toward the sea, which is a really bad place uh, to go if you're trying to flee somebody because... Ultimately, you hit the sea, and there's nowhere else to go. And so as the Egyptians follow, they find them and pin them in. God sends them away from a primary path and sends them into this moment of trouble. It's an ancient story, but it has a contemporary issue for us, doesn't it? How many of us have gone through a trial or a season of life, and we we sit back and we go, Really, God? This is the plan? This is supposed to make things right. This is supposed to be what you chose for me. We've all had that moment where we wonder, God, what are you doing? Because this doesn't seem to glorify anyone. And I would say, it's possible we just don't know the end of the story. See, because all of Scripture is a reminder. All of Scripture is a reminder that God's plans for today are always focused on his best results for tomorrow. Talk to people who've been through deep trial, who've been through deep heartache, who've been through, some of them say, I still don't see the end result of this. I still don't see the fruit of this. But many do. 
Because all of Scripture is a reminder. Every story works this way. God's plans for today, as confusing as they may be, are always focused on his best result for tomorrow. God is far less concerned with satisfying an urge in the moment than he is for satisfying his purpose for eternity. And for us in our moment, like the Israelites, we say, this is the plan? And if we could only zoom out, we might go, oh, this is the plan. The other thing we see immediately as we read the scripture is that which enslaves us always pursues us. That which enslaves us always pursues us. Ask someone who's walked away from addiction. There are people in this room who've, who've quit smoking, who have tried to quit smoking and failed, who have no interest in quitting smoking, whatever that is. You ask somebody who's tried, whether they fail or succeed, how difficult that can be. Smoking is this perfect example because there's triggers everywhere, right? Any addictive behavior has triggers all over it. Our sin has triggers that lead us back into the darkness. And yet, you ask somebody, you say, you know, what was it like to quit? And they'll go, well, I couldn't eat there anymore because every time I ate there, it made me want to smoke. And I couldn't be here anymore because every time I was with these people, it made me want to never. I couldn't smell this anymore and I couldn't see this person. And I, everything's a trigger. And you look around and you know somebody who's quit or who's kicked it, who's given it up. And, and you'll see at those moments, that finger sort of gets in that little groove where that cigarette might have been and that, that itch kind of starts and you see them try to power through. It's no different than any other addiction. It's no different than any other thing that sort of ensnares us and won't let us go is that that which enslaves us always pursues us. And so the Israelites and the Egyptians are just this picture for us. To go, you can't outrun your sin, you can't outrun what the darkness would chase you with. The other reality we've learned in the past few weeks is you can't outrun God and his purpose for you. But what darkness needs is just that crack, just that hint of doubt to creep back in and say, maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe you do want to go back to that. Maybe you, maybe it's not so bad. And we rethink everything. It's what the Israelites have done. They've been enslaved and they have a hint of doubt introduced into the world and they go, you know what, maybe, maybe we were really enjoying slavery in Egypt. Maybe that was a good thing. And it's totally irrational from the outside. We see it now and we go, who would think that? And yet it's, it's a perfect picture of what we all struggle with and deal with as we wrestle with right things, wrong things. The Israelites were enslaved, have been freed, are pursued, and then just sort of decide that resistance is futile. They want to really, willingly return to bondage. And so at this point, as we look at the narrative, the story doesn't look so good. They're pinned in, there's nowhere to go, and they say, let's just go back to being slaves rather than just be killed in the wilderness. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. For the Egyptians, for whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord fights for you while you keep silent. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward, and as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel should go through the midst of the sea on dry land, and as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they will go in after them. And I will be honored, again he says this, I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots, his horsemen. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. You stop right here, we kind of know where this is going, a lot of us. Notice what God doesn't tell Moses. He doesn't give him the whole plan. 
He just goes, hey, split the sea and walk. And then I'm going to send Pharaoh after you. Okay, Moses? And Moses is like, this doesn't solve anything. They're after us, and they're still going to be after us. So they're going to just follow us through the... Okay, well, thanks, God. Really sweet. So we just get to keep running. It's like an exercise trick. What you see for Moses is there's a great faith required here. He doesn't give him the results. He just gives him the plan. Which sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. It came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along the darkness. And yet it gave light at night. Notice that it is night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept back the sea by a strong east wind. The word there is ruach. Breath or spirit or wind. And it came all night. Again, it's night. And he turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right and on the left. And the Egyptians took up pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. And he brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty to the Egyptians, said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against us. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. And the plan starts to make more sense. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. The Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. It strikes me that God chose the hour of greatest darkness to display the brilliant light of his rescue. God chooses the hour of greatest darkness to display the light of his rescue. He says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is an important concept for us. We live in a a culture that says religiousness will save you. Good works will save you. Best behavior will save you. God says, I will save you. You can spend your life trying to do good things to outweigh the bad. You can live by moral codes or religious rules, and it's never enough. It never satisfies. Why? Because God makes a way that effort cannot find. If you distilled the Bible into just a couple phrases, one of the core things we have to take from all of Scripture is that God makes a way that effort cannot find. That no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, how many rules we keep, how religious we are, all of the effort can't get us across that sea. And yet God comes and with his breath, it's done. Even as believers, people who have followed Jesus for a long time, we end up kind of sinking back into this life where we live to earn back the thing that was given to us. Well, I owe God, and so I'm going to do these things, and maybe that way he'll see me as a more worthy recipient of that grace thing that I think I have. God divides the sea. God makes a path. God protects it. God makes a way. It's the perfect picture of salvation, that God opens a path to freedom. And so it's important that we stop and we look and we see that the Israelites were not saved by the amount of faith 
that they had, but by the power of God to hold the water back. I'm not always the most optimistic person. I'll admit this to you. I call myself a cynical optimist, which is to say everything is going to go really wrong, but it'll all be okay. Sort of fun unless you're my wife and you have to live with me. Um, And so I think I would be leading the doubt brigade if I was with the Israelites. Okay, so this God who has brought us out of slavery is going to then march us the wrong direction in front of this sea, which is kind of a no-go. And there's the army, and then, oh, oh, you're going you're gonna to push back the water, and so I'm going to be walking through skyscrapers of sea on either side of me. Not like, not like 20 feet, but i got to walk the thing all the way through. I would be the first one going, well, guys, we could die by the sword, or maybe drowning would be less painful, so let's just go, and when all this fails, you know, Cool. And that, that's exactly what I would be saying. I'd be like, well, you know, you can pick your poison, right, guys? Let's go. A few of you might be righteous enough that you would have faith and you would say, yeah, God's going to save us. Watch, this is going to work out. For the vast majority of us, we'd go, death, death, death. Oh, cool. Really cool. Really cool, God. I would argue, knowing human nature, just a little bit, that most of them were sure they were going to drown when the waters crashed down upon them. And yet when they reached the far shore, who among them was saved? All of them. Not just the few that may have been faithful and said, God's going to do this. I believe this. We're going to make it. He's going to save us. Watch. I, got, I think I got the plan. Not just them, but them And the ones who were on the fence and the ones who were the last one to get across the sea because they were really sure this was not going to go well. And the ones who were dragging their feet, all of them, all who crossed that path to freedom were saved. What does this teach us? What saved them is not the quality of their faith, but their willingness to accept God's plan to salvation. We measure ourselves by the quality of our faith, and yet what Scripture is telling us, it isn't about the quality of your faith, it's whether you're willing to accept God's path to salvation. My older sister was a Girl Scout uh, for a hot minute back in the day. They were camping out in, and I don't know, we'll call it the wilderness, I don't really have a picture of it, I was little. And they're camping, and, and one of these sort of torrential floods happens while the Girl Scouts are out camping. So I don't know what they're doing, eating tagalongs or whatever, and, and it starts to rain, right? And it rains, and it rains, and it rains, and all of a sudden, this, this campsite they were at, uh, because the two dry gullies on either side of them are now full, these camp, this campsite is now sort of like an island within uh, the stream. Some of you are going to be singing that song later. You can thank me. A couple of you. I've got to get out of my head now. So they're sitting there, and, and Girl Scouts, while fierce, are no match for two raging rivers. And the floodwaters keep coming, and so what the authorities decide as this uh, emergency progresses is they're going to have to get a helicopter to go get these kids out, because the waters are rising. So the helicopter shows up, the rescue helicopter shows up, and begins pulling uh, Girl Scouts on to the chopper. And I would ask you, as they put their thin mints down and get in the arms of this loving 
I know Girl Scouts do more than cookies, but they're really good, right? Okay. Um, as they get into the helicopter, let's, let's discuss this for a minute. What saves the Girl Scouts? The power of the Girl Scout to get into the chopper or the fact that the chopper came and found the Girl Scout? One after another hops in and gets buckled in and this strapping, you know, rescue guy picks them up, puts them in the chopper, picks them up, puts them in the chopper. The willingness of the Girl Scout to simply be picked up is all that was required for the salvation in the moment. And that is the same picture we see in Israel. It's the same picture we see in our own lives that it is not the quality of the Girl Scout that got them saved. It was the quality of the Savior. What does any of this have to do with Easter? You might be asking. I'm so glad you asked. Matthew Chapter 27, verse 45. Now the sixth hour, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So again, darkness. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them, the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again, or the word means howled out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John 19, it says, he cried out, it is finished, and he hung his head and died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and they appeared to many. And the centurion, the guard, those who were with him and keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became frightened. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. God chooses the hour of greatest darkness to display his brilliant light of rescue. In the moment of greatest darkness, Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai. In that moment, if you were watching the scenes play out, if you were there in the moment, you'd go, wait. This is not how this was supposed to go. We laid our palm branches down. We said, Hosanna, here comes the king. This is not where this is supposed to be. He's dead. Our king our Messiah, our hope, it's finished. And yet, yet you can almost hear the whisper of Moses in this moment. You can almost hear the whisper of of Moses as the Savior is on the cross and all hope seems lost and their backs are against the wall and the disciples begin to scatter. You can almost hear it coming forward 1,300 years as a people that this whisper would be in their ear, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight while you keep silent. You get this sense as you read this that there's a moment coming, that there's this beautiful thing happening, and while we can't see it in the moment, while we don't understand the plan when it's right in front of us, you get this sense that we can stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Scholars point to the cross and they say that that based on the way it was all phrased and the way that it was all set forth and the way that, that we know what Jesus endured, that you could say he was already experiencing hell, eternal separation. He was experiencing the greatness of death in those last moments of the cross. Why are you forsaking me? 
being forsaken, being separated, and he begins to see the picture of what he must endure From the darkness, there is a howling out of Jesus. He howls with a loud voice and gives up his spirit. He howls. 1,300 years before, there was darkness and there was howling. It was a strong wind that came upon the sea, a howling wind. The Hebrew word, ruach, the spirit, this breath, this wind came upon the sea and split the sea in two. The Spirit of God sends Ruach to hold the water back. And the Son of God gives up Ruach. He breathes out his last, and in doing so, sin is blown away. When he says, it is finished, tetelestai, that is not like finishing your breakfast or your taxes. That is like, it is finished. There is nothing left to do. It is accomplished. It is completed. It is done. Close the book. Immediately, the curtain is torn This curtain is torn in two, like a certain picture of something being divided so that we might walk in to freedom. The earth shakes, the rocks split, and that which kept man from the presence of God is torn. The path is opened by way of the death of Jesus, by the very breath of God. Are you seeing the parallels? The darkness of the ninth plague leads to the tenth plague, which is death of the firstborn. The darkness on the cross leads to the death of the firstborn, to God's only begotten Son. And after the final plague, the sea opens, and it leads God's people to salvation through a path they could never have imagined. After Jesus hangs his head, the curtain tears, opening a path to God that the people could never have imagined. Like with the sea, God thunders through nature to exhibit his power. The rocks break, the earth shakes, tombs are opened, the guards are stunned. Surely this was God. The Egyptians said the same thing. Surely this is God fighting on their behalf. When God moves, he is unmistakably known. When God moves, he's unmistakably known. Which is why your testimony carries so much value. Because it can't be refuted. Because when God has moved in your life, it is unmistakable to you. And the authenticity with which you carry the story God has given you is irrefutable to those who you might tell it to. When God moves, he's unmistakably known. And yet the death of Jesus is only the beginning. Three days after he died, he rose. This is the resurrection. The path is open to salvation. We're saved. Saved from what? From the debt that we owe. From that which enslaved us. We're saved from that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher and theologian, said, We don't know how to respond to the statement, Your bill has been paid, until we know how big the bill was. Until we understand the debt that's been Paid. Sin, wrongdoing, falling short, brings consequences. It does in the world around us. It does in a spiritual sense that when we act afoul of the law, God's law, man's law, when we act afoul, it, it, it tips the scales of justice off. God is a just God and a perfect God. And when we fall afoul, when we sin, when we go astray, what happens is the scales of justice are now unbalanced. What this requires is that somebody would take the punishment so that the balance can be restored. Jesus takes it on. 
Because greater love is no one than this, that he might lay down his life for his friends. So he goes to the cross and Jesus is going saying, someone must bear the cost for sin. And so the Lamb of God lays down his life. The wrath is poured out on God's only Son as it passes over his people. The blood of the Lamb is the blood on the doorpost of our lives, the covering that spares us from death. In dying, Jesus destroyed our death. In rising, he restores our life. He's delivered us from sin and then saved us from grace. And so the tomb is not open so he could get out, but that we might see in. The tomb is not open, the stone is not rolled away so Jesus can get out. It's so that we might see in and see that he is not there, he's risen. Death could not hold Jesus, the grave could not keep him. That is what we celebrate today. That God split the sea so his people might avoid death. That Jesus split the sea of death so we might walk into true life. He conquers death and the path to the presence of God is made whole. Shalom is returned. The brokenness that took on the earth, Jesus says, I will make it whole again. That whoever should believe should not perish, but have eternal life. This is our eternity. It is not life after death. It is life without death. That your eternity starts at the moment of belief. And this is the reality of those who believe in Jesus. That it's not about what you have earned. It is not about how many right things you've done versus wrong things you've done. It's not about following religious steps or processes. It's that whosoever shall believe might be made whole. The rescuer comes down. Jesus comes down to his people and he says, I've got you. Climb on. I've got you. Not your perfection. Not your works. Not your religious two-step that you can, you can show me. None of that. Jesus says, I got you, and I also have your doubt, and I have your fear, and I have your insecurity, and I will make you new. Come on. And so if you believe, then today is like no other day. This is why we sing hallelujah. This is why we're so excited that the perfect lamb has overcome, because darkness has passed over us. And we again remember We remember that darkness was defeated and that light has become our destiny. We remember that it is finished, that we are free, and there is nothing left to do. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate a risen Savior. We celebrate a deliverance that we could never have earned. And we cannot lose. Easter is our day to remember. It's our true Independence Day. It's where God makes a path where effort couldn't find one. And so the challenge for us on a day like today is simple. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are your children. God, we are standing in your presence. And pray that it is a picture to you. That we are people who don't believe in our own ability, our own works, or our own uh, ways. But Father, we rest on your path and on your grace and on your work on the cross. We rest on an open grave, an empty tomb, a risen Savior. So Father, we stand as a people. We pray that we see your salvation afresh today, that we would see it anew today, that we would feel it in a way that would remind us how incredible your rescue really is. Father, my prayer in this room is that this would not be a holiday, a time where we 
eat well and laugh with family, although we will do that. My prayer is that today would be a day of profound remembrance and joy. That every conversation would be washed in the beauty of your rescue. That every heartbeat of ours, we would remember that it is your grace and your love and your mercy and your breath that even allows us to live. Father, we were dead in our sins and you sent Jesus and he has made us whole. He has righted the scales of justice. He has brought us to you. So God, we say thank you. Open our eyes that we might see your salvation anew and share it with lives of light, lives of hope, lives of confidence in you as our Savior. Amen.